Welcome to the Meat and Poultry Podcast. This podcast is your online portal to hear from experts in the industry about the latest news, trends, technologies, and people in the world of meat and poultry processing. For the Meat Poultry Podcast, I'm Ryan McCarthy, Digital Media Editor. During mid-September, the U.S. Meat Export Federation sent a delegation to Tokyo, Japan to commemorate the 45th anniversary of the inaugural USMEF office that opened in the city in 1977. Japan remains crucial to the U.S. export market and the association felt like it was an appropriate time to celebrate the long-standing relationship. So for this episode of the Meat and Poultry Podcast, we talked with Dan Hallstrom, President and Chief Executive Officer for USMEF on what the mission meant to his group and their Japanese counterparts. Near the beginning, Dan takes a look back at the historical perspective of working with Japan and what it's meant to the growth of USMEF. Later, Dan explains some of the activities US representatives were able to participate in that showcased American red meat, as well as see what's going on in Japan. Dan also shares what it meant to have delegates from various sectors of the U.S. agricultural industry up and down the red meat supply chain make the trip. Near the end of the podcast, Dan gives some general thoughts on what the export market looks like for the remainder of 2022. There's all that and more in this episode, so we hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Hallstrom. Just to get started, Dan, what what did it mean to, to USMEF? to have your Japanese counterparts to celebrate this milestone in Japan, um, particularly after the last few years that we've gone through? Yeah, Ryan, that's a good good point. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, 45 years uh, in any industry is impressive, but, uh, you know, I think uh, the 45th anniversary of having our office in, in Japan located in Tokyo is, it was, um, it was it was a milestone, but as you said, the fact that we're just coming out of COVID, the timing of it was pretty good as well. I mean, the uh, um, you know the 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 Asian markets, but specifically Japan, has had seven or eight declarations around COVID, and the most recent one was only lifted in April, so that really wasn't that long ago. So to kind of get back over there, and in fact, our um, gathering for the seminar on September 16th, we had well over 200 people in attendance, about 250. And that was the single largest business gathering uh, post COVID uh, in Tokyo at the time. So uh, the timing, I was a little nervous of even getting it to actually happen, Uh, but but it worked out and it it was really good. So with, what were you able to see there uh, as far as the Japanese beef markets and, and production side, or were you guys just there for the celebration? Kind of take me through the timeline of how much time you guys had there. I know you mentioned mid-September, but how much time did you guys have to interact with everything over there in Tokyo? Yeah, we were, we had a, we had a producer uh, group of constituents of our members that were part of the team as well. So uh, we had uh, a couple of, producers, uh, producer representatives from Texas Beef Council. We had uh, uh, the CEO of Iowa Corn Promotion Board. We had uh, uh, a couple of representatives from um, uh, the Cattlemen's Beef Board as well. 
and that combined with a couple of our producer representatives on our own uh, board, uh, along with a few of us. So we were over there um, for the whole week, uh, for basically for four days. And uh, um, yeah, we were able to see, we, we had some ongoing retail activities at Eon stores in particular that we were a part of. We had a uh, uh, cooking school chef seminar with bloggers that were also bloggers uh, where we featured U.S. beef and pork. Um, and we had uh, various other meetings with industry uh, representatives, importers in particular. And we had we had a dinner one night with um, six or seven of the largest importers of U.S. products and uh, at a dinner at Peter Luger's Steakhouse. And, you know, those not those seven uh, companies representative about 90% of the imports into Japan. So it was a really good opportunity for our group to uh, reconnect uh, and, and also to tell our story <clears throat> since we hadn't done that in person for a uh, better part of two years. Right. Um, and from a historical perspective, since you're looking at 45 years, was there anything that really stood out to you uh, during the celebration, the presentation that that really stood out to you? Yeah, I think um, to me, the, the the celebration was nice and all that, but uh, it kind of made me reflect on, on you know, the history. And, um, you know, I think it's a testament to the fact that these markets don't just uh, occur overnight. Uh, last year, uh, we exported beef and pork over $4 billion worth of product, which is amazing when you think about it. But But that's taken... 45 or plus years to develop. And uh, I think it's a testament to the fact that the industry working together, telling our story, we have some of the safest, highest quality products in the world, but it takes time to, to uh, get these um, consumers in these countries to really uh, enhance it and adopt the product. And, uh, and um, we've come from, you know, the, the bowels of BSE, if you remember, yeah back in late this 2003. And now the beef business is back up uh, well over 2 billion a year. And uh, so Japan is a very loyal market and uh, a very uh, trustworthy market. And uh, it's just a testament to the fact that that's a result of a lot of work over many decades. Dan, I know you've been with USMEF for a while, but can you kind of take us through the experience of seeing the Japanese market compared to the U.S. market, I, I'm guessing you might have, have you been over there before and seen it and kind of comparing the two a little bit? Oh, yeah, many times, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think I've traveled to Japan over 100 times in my career. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. The uh, The Japanese culture is, is not so much a steak culture. It's more of a thin meat culture. So... Um, while there is a boom going on at food service with steaks, it's new and it's a very small niche of their consumption. So it's more of a, like I said, a thin meat culture where you'll take a chuck roll, shave it real thin, uh, use it for hot pot or barbecue. Uh, same thing with short ribs uh, and, and beef tongue. Uh, beef tongue uh, is a specialty in uh, at Yakiniku in, in the Japanese culture. And, uh, you know, you, beef tongues are worth wholesale, you know, delivered over there, you know, about $10 a pound. And you're lucky if you get a dollar a pound for it here. Right. So, so that's the key. It's about matching up the culture with the products to maximize carcass value. 
they don't buy many ribeyes. It's not, they don't, whereas we love ribeyes here. So I kind of look at these export markets, especially a market like Japan is complementing the domestic market here because they tend to focus on products like short plates, tongues, uh, short ribs, maybe things that aren't as popular here, but yet the demand for middle meats is minimal. Very few tenderloins come here, come to Japan, very few ribeyes. Um, so, so it's a pretty good complement uh, to the two markets in that regard. And I imagine when you guys go for something like this, the exchange of ideas has got to be very fascinating where, you know, in the last 10 or so, maybe even longer, we've, there's more ideas of switching Japanese beef coming here and American beef going over there. Take, take me through a little bit of that of when you're exchanging the ideas and people trying so many different types of beef uh, from that perspective. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think the, um, the ideation, um, this is something the Japanese are very, very good at. Um, they're, they're good at identifying uh, new products, new ideas, new concepts, new stories. The story behind the product is very important in a market like Japan. There's other markets too where it's very important, Asia in general. But um, and one of the one of the topics that's really of interest now, um, and it is here in the U.S. as well, is the sustainability topic. You know, doing more with less. Uh, we have a wonderful story to tell in the U.S. on beef and pork production using less water through technology, recycling, things like this. Those sorts of topics in helping to tell the story are in, invaluable. So th those are good examples of some ideas and, and things, uh, topics that were exchanged uh, regularly with these buyers in, in Japan. And uh, it, it really, really works well. We will be right back after a short break. In the October issue of Meat Poultry Magazine, look for our cover story on Creekstone Farms and its commitment to quality. Next, check out some Alaskan entrepreneurs in our Small Business Matters section. Finally, don't miss out on the annual Bacon Report. There's all that and more in the October edition of Meat Poultry Magazine. I was going to ask you, Dan, how important was it to have so many different pieces of uh, the beef, pork, corn associations being over there with you to, to do this and kind of being able to look at the entire process of, of getting beef to wherever it needs to go. Was that, was that crucial for, to, for all this? Yes, definitely. It is, uh, Ryan, the, uh, the, and that's, the, that was the whole idea is, uh, if you bring constituents who are members, leader members of ours, a lot of them are leaders and, and very invested in USMEF bringing the actual producers or the leaders of the producer organizations with us to help tell the story as a producer is invaluable. I mean, uh, um, you know, we had uh, Dean Meyer, our uh, chair elect, who's also a member of the Iowa Corn Board and, and, uh, and, a, and a pig and hog producer and cattle producer. Mm. And, and he actually, um, we, we actually featured him in a video that we're using in some of our promotions in Japan and he was one of the keynotes at the uh, at the blogger event that I mentioned, and having him as a producer, a multi generational producer with his family, his kids, his grandkids, part of the operation, and talking about how 
how they're um, producing high quality uh, beef and pork in a sustainable manner and how they do it. It was extremely interesting for the audience and uh, very well received. Um, let's see if there was anything else. Oh, uh, were you, was it mainly in Tokyo, Dan? I know since you've been there a lot of times, you've probably been able to see a lot of different pieces of J the Japanese beef uh, in the past, but were you able, was it just because of their, their, stances on COVID, it was still just staying in Tokyo for the most part this time? Yeah, this particular trip being the first one back, uh, yeah, it was it was primarily in the Tokyo area, but uh, but USMEF is an organization, you know, we're involved in, in uh, Okinawa, we're involved up in Hokkaido and, and Osaka, the western region of Japan. Actually, the Osaka western region of Japan, the Kansai area, is actually the, the primary beef consumption region of Japan, whereas the Kanto Tokyo area is more of a pork consuming region. So yes, um, this particular trip was just logistics timing was mainly Tokyo, but uh, yeah, you see some change, some, some differences in different parts of the country. Uh, for example, the Northern Honshu Island and Hokkaido are really big uh, offal consumers. So beef tongue, tripe, uh, intestine, um, you know, it's uh, it, it's a different culture. Uh, they're, they're not so interested in in chuck rolls and middle meats, you know. So uh, it is quite interesting to look at the differences in consumption behavior in the different parts uh, of Japan. For for you guys at USMEF, how many people do you guys keep on the ground there in Japan on a, on a yearly basis? Uh, take me through a little bit of that part. I know that was part of the celebration as well. Yeah, our, our office over there, it's our largest office, uh, simply because it's our largest market. Um, we have uh, 13 people on staff. Um, this is a combination of marketing and call them salespeople. Uh, we also have uh, accountants. Uh, we also have uh, some PR um, people as well. So, um, and in the marketing side, um, we have marketing folks that are working with the beef and pork trade and lamb for that matter. And then there's a, a smaller group, a subgroup uh, that work on the consumer side. So they're working with bloggers or working with uh, a cooking show hosts. Uh, there's one that actually was at part of our blogger event. Her name is Rika Yukamasa, and uh, she's a famous cooking show host on TV over there. And she's been doing work with us for years. And, uh, you know, so, so we're doing events with that, that bring in the consumer and the social media side to the events. So it's quite effective, especially in a market like Japan, it's very akin to uh, social media and, and, uh, and these influencers and bloggers um, have a big say in what happens on the consumption side. Yeah. I'm sure that's an interesting part of marketing and everything that you guys uh, try to tackle with, everything that you you're trying to do um and in japan yeah obviously it's it's got to be a really interesting aspect to try to break in uh, on there always definitely yep okay um the other thing I, I wanted to uh talk a little bit about dan is just kind of exports in general what what's been looking at kind of driving the conversation of late um in, in the export market i mean I, I know you guys have had a great year so far um, all things considered, but what, what's kind of been the big thing now that you guys are looking at to, to finish off the year and then going into 23? 
Well, our focus right now is to try to maintain this momentum. Um, it, it is record-breaking on the beef side and, and the pork side's down, but if you take China out of the mix, um, the pork side is is still going to be one of the largest years. Well, it'll be one of the largest years even with China, but we're only down a couple percent if you take China out. So it's still a really, really good year for pork as well. But the story on 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 both, but especially beef, is it's broad-based growth that's driving this beef, uh, the record. Uh, it's not just Japan, although Japan's doing well, but you've got China, you've got the Caribbean region, you've got uh, uh, places like Colombia. Um, so there's a lot of different markets that are contributing to this uh, growth. Korea, I left out one of the biggest ones, Korea. Yeah, yeah so um, this is really the goal. The goal is to try to diversify and... Um, markets and grow, not just focus on the big markets, but focus on some of the emerging regions of the world as well. Uh, Indonesia is another area that's seen dramatic growth on beef uh, over the last two years. Uh, in Africa, you know, beef variety meats to Africa is another area. So, so it's really about broad-based growth. And quite frankly, the strategy is similar on the pork side. Um, you know, the, the story this year so far is mainly about Mexico and Latin America. A lot of that has to do with the fact that that they're fully back to normal COVID wise and food service is absolutely booming. Tourism is starting to boom and we're seeing it in Latin America. But once again, the goal is broad based growth. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen a few months here where Japan and Korea on the pork side has showed some uh, renewed strength. Um, and we have uh, Cent Central America has been doing very well um, and South America, Colombia in particular, doing very well. So and the Caribbean as well on pork. So maybe not as broad as beef, but still a pretty broad swath of growth outside of, uh, you know, of course, the real story everyone talks about on pork is the China decrease. But uh, the rest of the world's looking pretty good at the moment. Yeah. And another thing that I'm sure you've tackled, especially since 2020, 2021, with figuring out logistics and supply chain of how to send all this stuff around the world. Um, where, where is that kind of at? I, I know we've seen a few reports in the last couple of days where containers are kind of getting a little more empty now, but it's not, they're just trying to figure it out still kind of, is it just still kind of a difficult thing to pin down more than anything with this market of this world market? I don't I don't know that it's hard to pin down, but um, it, it it is a it is a complex topic. Um, so let me try to summarize it. I think I think what we're seeing is um, you go back a year ago, um, we probably were at the height of the of the uh, madness around uh, bookings, available containers, uh, you know, uh, stabilized freight rates. I mean, you know, you you could book some cargo a year ago, and and by the time it shipped, the price could, the freight rate could be double. You know, yeah. That's the sort of thing we were seeing and hearing about. I think that part settled down. The freight there's enough to your point, enough available empties that 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 part has stabilized. The part that has not stabilized is we have other issues. We have lack of chassis in some ports. We have uh, backlogs in China. That has not improved all that much. Um, yeah. And that's the zero COVID policy in China. You know, the, the ports, you know, you 
there was a while there in some of the key ports, uh, Nanjing and some of the other ones, Shanghai, where if you had a couple of positive COVID cases, they'd lock down the better part of the province. And, and the only people working at the ports were the ones sleeping there. If they went home to their apartment, um, they couldn't get out uh, to go back to work. And this resulted in backlogs um, in China. So you think of these vessel um, uh, schedules, they're global schedules. It's like yep. making a big circle around the world. So if you get hung up in one other part of the world, eventually it'll affect us here. And that's what happened. I think that is maybe improving a bit as well, but it's still not back to normal. Uh, we still, when we were over in Japan and I went on to Korea after Japan, uh, we're still hearing for customers uh, inconsistencies of the schedules. And while it's better, it's it's not perfect. It, we still have work to do to get it back to normal. Sounds good. Last thing, Dan, and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, are there any other big celebrations that you guys would have to do? I'm sure this was a huge endeavor to put this together and the planning of it. Um, is there any other big milestones that you guys are going to be tracking in the, in the near future? Um, I'm sure um, we, of course, the, the really big one for uh, for uh, Japan will be their 50th in five years, and uh, USMEF's 50th is in four years. Uh, the Korea office will have their 35th coming up in a couple of years. So yeah, there's a few things going on that we're looking forward to, but uh, uh, in the next year or two, I don't think there's anything, any big milestones, but uh but a couple of years, like I said, a couple of years later, we'll see some of these, you know, five-year anniversaries coming up on some of these big offices. Sounds good. Well, Dan, we appreciate the time as always. It's always good to get some information on what's going on with the exports. So um, I appreciate the time and uh, good luck with everything else the rest of the year. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Uh, we're open anytime uh, you want to get together. Make sure to check out the latest stories from the monthly print edition and online at meatpoultry.com. Also follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, all by searching at Meat Poultry. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us. All right, that's it for this time, folks. Thanks for listening and have a great day.